Got a question here. Uh, do any of you ever root for the underdog? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this is not purple. Red and blue. So. Uh, and uh, which really doesn't have a whole lot to do about what we're going to talk about today. But in a sense, it does because we're going to talk about the culture. And this is a bit of a different type of a message and perhaps the beginning of a series that will be, you know, probably last through the summer. Um, and I wasn't even sure this was appropriate because, you know, we at Lion and Lamb want to teach the Word and that should be our primary focus. And frankly, this is a little bit more philosophical. It's uh, more about the approach that we can take to reach the world more effectively. Uh, Another weakness that I have is I don't have a lot of original thoughts. And so, frankly, what I'm going to be talking about is really from, largely from, a book by Brad Bright, who is the son of Bill Bright. And Brad, uh, as you might expect, has worked for Campus Crusade. Uh, But he's also been involved in government and politics and uh, surprised me that he explained that his dad, Bill, had some pretty strong convictions about some of the issues that we face. But Brad saw this other issue, or recognized that we're missing something. And so he wrote, uh, you know, when people stand up and recommend that you read a book, you know, you see this large tome held up there, and you say, yeah, sure, I've got time for that. Well, this one, you do. It's, a, it's called God is the Issue, and it is readable. It's a quick read, it's a good one, and it's very concise in helping us understand how we can actually change the debate, which is um, not necessarily going well. Um, so today, what I hope to do is just introduce in a very basic sense, uh, and in the widest way, how we can influence our culture. You know, this morning, uh, Randall talked about how we should use Scripture to inform our culture and not the other way around. Uh, And we want to take that even in a broader sense and figure out what's missing. Why are we so ineffective? What must first happen to affect a sea change of attitude toward all, all the major issues of life. I want to you know, issue a warning first. I'm not saying that we should adopt the approach that we'll talk about from this book in all of our conversations, or necessarily even most of them. Um, certainly there are situations where we've got to use in our conversations and talking to people. We've just got to use common sense, pragmatic arguments sometimes, uh, moral arguments sometimes. Uh, And in addition to that, usually the most effective way to win somebody over is by loving, understanding friendship, a compassionate heart. You earn the trust of somebody and you open the door for them to ask questions about your personal joy and your security in Christ. So I'm not 
trying to say this is the answer to all those, all those approaches. This is not necessarily what you want to do. But on the other hand, uh, most of us intentionally avoid talking about God in today's society because we're overly concerned about offending someone or, in the public arena, losing credibility. Therefore, I think the danger threat, excuse me, the greater danger, is that we will go through our lives without even mentioning, outside of these walls in our homes, the most important being in the universe. And so, where are we as a church in this culture? There's a couple of analogies that I've heard over the years. One is usually to describe the difference between the Democratic and the Republican Party or liberals and conservatives. Uh, but I think it applies to the church and the world. Okay? If you picture with me two ships at sea, you know, one larger ship farther ahead, another smaller ship behind, and you notice if you standing back a few miles, the smaller ship is following the larger ship. What you don't see is that Underwater, there's a a long mile or two chain connecting the two. They're tethered together. They are separate, but the latter follows the first. And in a sense, that's where we are. In all those different arenas, the church largely follows the culture today. Maybe a more appropriate and on-point analogy is the thought of two opposing bulldozers coming at one another. Who's going to win? Well, you think of size and power and traction are all factors that are going to play in there. And this is, uh, I don't often find myself, you know, rooting for Goliath, but we are this afternoon, considered Goliath, and, but who's the church? Is the church in the culture word David or Goliath? I think that's a fair question. We sometimes consider ourselves David because we're so small against the great big world. Now, we need to consider that because we've got a trump card. We've got an ace in a hole, and I want to talk about that. What if, though, instead of just two bulldozers coming together, what if the smaller the seemingly smaller, less powerful bulldozer, is bolted down to a foundation. And it's that foundation that I want to talk about today. Where is America now? Once it was the shining light on a hill. Now it is a leading exporter of pornography. Once it was a haven for religious refugees. Now we spill, uh, we, we exclude Uh, religion from our educational discussions and our political discussions. Once we paid the price in blood to free slaves, now we spill the blood of the innocents on the altar of choice. Just this week, in perusing some of the, the headlines on the Internet, I saw news of a pregnant husband. If you want to understand how that works, ask me later on, and a 13-year-old arrested for running a prostitution ring among her peers. You know, it seems like we're careening down the highway 
and the wheels are wobbling in, as a culture. Now, what do we do? Some res- respond with God, but their approach may be wrong-headed in that, that they fail to lay the foundation so others see the relevance of God. Others, in addition, are wrong-hearted, maybe like what we've heard about the Reverend Jeremiah Wright more recently, or our world-famous Topeka Church that we often hear about in the news over in Westboro. Of course, conservative politicians say the answer is family or traditional values. Have you ever found yourself wondering, what does that mean to someone else? Is there really enough of a foundation left to even define traditional values? And I've got to admit, we have found ourselves in a real dilemma here. I've been in legislative hearings, and, you know, it's hard to get to lay the foundation and, and get across a concept that comes from Scripture. Uh, I've got a friend that some of you know, probably, who was a, a prosecuting attorney, and he was prosecuting, I think it was a murder or a, uh, a sexual assault case, and he made the mistake in his closing argument of mentioning how this has always been against law and nature, even the Bible, and that, for that reason, the conviction was appealed. And there was a a complaint raised against this attorney because he mentioned God in court. We're in a difficult position largely because God has slowly been excused out the door. Um... Well, let me ask this question. What is the nature of a value? Is it a cause or is it an effect? Cause or effect. That's really kind of what we need to focus on here. And I had to think about this. George Washington put it this way. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Let me put it more succinctly. He said... It is impossible to govern the world without God and the Bible. This is the, what many consider to be the founder of our country. John Adams went on and said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. In other words, our Constitution, unlike those of Europe, where kings and queens reigned, and there was pretty much what they said, that was the law. Rex Lex. We had a constitution that put the power in the people. It was of, for, and by the people. However, it only works if the people have a foundation from which to respond. It only works if the people have an inner morality. Once that's gone, our constitution will fail. That's what uh, I believe Washington was talking about when he mentioned a national morality. Why did they believe that morality and values were effects based upon the underlying cause of God in the Bible? Let's go through a simple syllogism here. Uh, Jonathan has taken logic here, uh, comes up here for one course for logic, and uh, 
See if this makes sense. All lasting values must have a foundation to avoid wandering standards. That's the major premise. Okay? American culture necessarily has a value system. Okay? That's a minor premise. The conclusion, therefore, American cultural values must have a foundation in order to survive. Okay? Pretty simple, isn't it? There's got to be something. Why has the system we call traditional or family values survived to some degree in the church, but not really very well within the culture? Another question is, does the opposing value system have a foundation in the culture? How do we recognize a foundation? We've got to become skilled at recognizing and distinguishing cause and effect. We've got to be able to focus more on curing the disease rather than just treating the symptoms. Now, the thoughts of some well-known folks might help us clarify this. Uh, Two days after 9-11, CBS's early show interviewed Am Graham Lotz, who's the daughter of Billy Graham. Uh, And they asked her the question, if God is so good, how could God let 9-11 occur? And her response was, I think, insightful. She said, for several years now, Americans, in a sense, have shaken their fist at God and said, God, we want you out of our schools, our government, our business. We want you out of our marketplace. And God, who is just a gentleman, has quietly backed out of our national and political life, removing his hand of blessing and protection. Margaret Sanger, if you don't know, she was the founder of Planned Parenthood. And I always knew her from quotes from her. Basically, her goal was to reduce the size of inferior races. That's pretty much what she was, what she wanted to do through birth control. But here's what she said as to her true motive. Birth control appeals to the advanced radical because it is calculated to undermine the authority of the Christian churches. I look forward to seeing humanity free someday from the tyranny of Christianity. In other words, birth control was not her primary goal. It was to undermine the authority of the church. Aldous Huxley humanist author of Brave New World, which people in my generation had to read, I believe, for school, an early pioneer of psychedelic drug use, and this is important to somebody in here, Aldous appears on the sleeve of the Beatles album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, But Aldous said this, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world, such as he, is concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants. The uh, famous Russian novelist uh, Dostoevsky said it more concisely. If there is no God, then everything is permitted. Also a Russian, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a Russian critic of communism, said on BBC radio, pretty sarcastically when he summed up the mindset of the Western world in the 20th century. He said, Since there are no higher spiritual forces above us, and since I, man with a capital M, am the crowning glory of the universe, 
then if anyone must perish today, let it be someone else, anybody, but not I, not my precious self or those who are close to me. On the other hand, Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. Now, if there is no God, there's no basis or motivation for loving anyone other than self. What does that all mean? What does it have to do with our culture? Well, I think what it means is that the moral collapse we see around us is not the critical issue. It's just the symptom of the underlying disease. Getting more specific, um, to focus all of our attention on abortion, on homosexuality and pornography and, these, and other issues like that is not like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, those issues have huge consequences, and God bless the warriors who engage in that battle. However, it may be a stretch, but I think there's some truth in saying that it is a little bit like patching the walls, the cracks on the walls, while the foundation is crumbling. The biblical analogy, of course, would be like from Matthew 7, the man building his house upon the sand. If we continue to solely debate behavior in the current cultural vacuum of moral relativism, we will win some, va- some battles due, the, due to the pragmatic nature of some of our arguments. Uh, pragmatism works well in some issues like abstinence. That is the best way to avoid STDs, frankly. It's hard to argue that. But on other issues, it doesn't work well at all. Take, for instance, before the, the magical stem cells came up, uh, when we used to argue, no, you can't use stem cells to do this research. It's immoral. And others would say, hey, these aborted fetuses are going to be discarded anyway. Who cares? Pragmatism is a fickle ally. Um, but if we simply debate behavior, we might win some of those arguments, lose some others, but we cannot win the war. The reality is that our arguments simply don't feel as good as theirs. Thou shalt not, cannot compete with, just do it. Sin is pleasurable for a season, as Hebrews 11 tells us. Why should anybody deny themselves a single pleasure if from their worldview point, God doesn't exist or He's irrelevant. So what is the foundation of the reigning cultural value system that we have today? What's the premise of their argument? Well, both, well, Solzhenitsyn recognized it and Huxley lived it. And they knew it as self as God. Now, Christians, on the other hand, would say, well, God is the only standard above man for right and wrong. But the world says there is no God. Or, humanism light says, it's a personal matter. You can believe whatever you want. Just don't say it. Uh, So, in their view, there really is no right or wrong above man. And immoral, or what we would call unbiblical behavior, cannot be judged wrong. Now, There are some honest or thinking atheists out there 
who recognize the inherent contradiction of their worldview. Uh, Brad Bright, while he was working on the University of Washington campus uh, for Crusade, decided to, to have a debate, and the topic of the debate was going to be, do moral absolutes exist? And so he had to find somebody to take the negative position. He went to the philosophy department, makes sense, and he asked a well-known professor who made it clear that he was an atheist if he would take that position. Well, after laughing at Brad for a while, he said, well, yeah, I understand that relativism really is the predominant cultural view of the masses, but no philosophy professor with a brain would dare debate that because there's no good argument to say that absolutes don't exist. His response was, absolutes are self-evident. But my problem is, I have not been able to develop a rational argument for the existence of absolutes without God. So not me. Instead, why don't you go talk to somebody in the literature department and you'll find a wacko there who will debate the issue with you. <laughs> the key here is that God is the key. He is the missing factor in the cultural war. And he's not missing because he's absent without leave. He's missing because we've failed or we've allowed him to be excused. Uh, and when we leave him out, we lose. Why do you think it's politically incorrect, even considered intolerant, to mention God? Therefore, to win this war, we've got to start shifting back the starting point from behavior to God in a way that makes sense to those who don't believe in God. Basically, we must argue to avoid moral anarchy or dictatorship in response to that anarchy, there must be an ultimate or above-man arbiter of truth, right, and wrong. Because if God exists, it's impossible to conclude that immoral behavior is acceptable. However, we cannot approach this process in the usual way. Biblical Christians have become increasingly marginalized and considered irrelevant to the culture. There was a bumper sticker back in the 70s that said, you know, God or the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And that pretty much sums up some of the arguments I've heard in front of uh, some, some committees. And I've been to a number of these public hearings, and well-meaning Christians get up and, and simply say, you know, God's on our side, therefore we win. And while they may speak the truth, uh, they do so ineffectively. They fail to lay the foundation to show the connection between worldview or cause and behavior or belief, which is the effect. Some leaders on our side have simply conceded defeat. Uh, Solzhenitsyn withdrew from the public arena in order to write for future generations because he believed that he had no hope of regaining the advantage in the cultural war in his lifetime. Some might even argue that the church is doing a pretty good job in proclaiming the word and made God and has made God the issue in, in some respects. 
Think about that. Is that so? Is our present strategy really working? Well, at least according to George Barna, of Christian teenagers, 9% believe in absolute truth. 40% believe that Jesus sinned. 53% believe that all faiths teach equally valid truths. And 68% do not believe that the Holy Spirit is real. According to another study, 78% of students in religious schools believe it is acceptable to cheat on exams. And parents, hold your seats, 95% believe it's okay to lie to the folks. It seems to me that families and churches are not really doing a very good job of effectively communicating biblical truth to young people and to our culture in general. Oswald Chambers said this, Conscience is that faculty in me which attaches itself to the highest that I know and tells me what the highest I know demands that I do. It is the eye of the soul which looks out either towards God or towards what it regards as the highest, and therefore conscience records differently in different people. Okay? Depends on your worldview. Our view of God will determine our belief system in individuals and as a society. I think it's pretty clear the stakes are high. Will we as a culture demand rights or fulfill God-given responsibilities? Will we look out for number one or will we serve and love one another? Will we talk about death with dignity or life with eternal meaning and purpose? Will we seek temporal wealth or eternal security and heavenly rewards? Will we see our most vulnerable as inconvenient blobs of tissue or as God's image in the making? Will we use women as objects or cherish them as life partners? Will we, in the words of humanist Friedrich Nietzsche, cry at the grave of God Or will we bow in worship at the manger and at the throne of the king? Now, you're going to continue to hear the word of God taught well by others here at Lion and Lamb. Uh, But over the next few months, I hope we can occasionally look at how we in everyday life can make that word more a part of the culture and hopefully our community. Now, many here are involved in in the issues of our time, and I would guess that most, if not all of you, pray about those issues. But the one thing I want to try to get across today is that God is the watershed. He is the dividing line. He is the cause. He is the, he is the issue. And we must 
find a way to effectively bring him back into the conversation. Please pray with me. Lord God, we do stumble. We recognize that this is a hard thing to do. We have been overwhelmed with layers and layers of cultural wet blankets on our faith. We want to speak the truth, but we want to speak it effectively. We want to reach the hearts of our neighbors, but we also desire, Lord, to bring you back into your rightful place. We know we won't accomplish that by sticking our fingers in the faces of others. We know that we must be as wise as servants, but as harmless as doves. But Lord, we all lack the skills. We don't fully understand how to do this. And we pray, Lord, that you would, in your way and in your time, instill in each one of us a knowledge of how to approach each and every situation, whether with a neighbor who's struggling or with a politician who's just got it completely wrong. I thank you, Father, for the faithfulness of the saints here at Lion and Lamb, and I pray that you would continue to use all of us for your best in every area in which we find ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.